0: Sociologists have a phrase they call "launching," where uh, you grow up and you do some things that are uh, meaningful to your life and your future. Um, I work at a couple of schools. Look at this sign. That uh, this is an actual sign you can put in dormitories in case of fire. Exit the building before tweeting about it. Can you believe that? Uh, but, hey, you know everything we live our lives online it 's an instagram life isn 't it? Um, now um, we're, I want to talk about adult adolescence. Because you know the phrase adolescence and there's adult. Um, I interviewed for my book that I don't have with me, 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. This book right here, I interviewed 111 families and children. Now, um, basically, five, six, seven, eight, that's childhood, very concrete thinking, everything is really black and white. Um, Kids that were five and six years old ask questions like this, Um, where, where does God go to the bathroom? Or if there's a river of life in heaven, will we swim in it? Very, very black and white. Um, You you ask a child, why did the sun come up in the morning? Because it makes me happy. Um, The the childhood years are very, um, and I'm not using this in a sarcastic way, but very narcissistic. For the child, it is all about me. But eventually we grow and we reach what we call pre-adolescence, before the adolescent years. And during the pre adolescent stage, we begin to develop the capacity for abstract thought. And we begin to think not so much about black and white concrete questions, but we begin to think uh, imaginatively and abstractly. And um, life becomes not always about us. And one of the healthy traits that we develop as we grow, but our, our sin nature works against this, we've got to develop the ability to live a life that's not all about me. And in fact, that's that's where some of the happiness of life comes in, and some of the most joyful people are people who think the least about themselves. And so, um, we kind of watch this path develop. By the way, to the moms and dads, let me say, as you answer your kids' questions about God, and as you hopefully model godly living in the home know this that by the adolescent years 11, 12, 13, 14 the questions about God become not so much about facts but about trust uh, a 9- or 10-year-old will ask, um, you know, how did, how did people in olden times write the Bible? We didn't have printers, how did they write the Bible? But a 13- 14-year-old asks questions that talk about fairness. Why do we have food when people in the Sudan are hungry tonight? Why did God let that hurricane hit New Orleans and all those innocent people got killed? Um, You know, there's the violence in the Middle East. Doesn't God care about that? It's interesting, in adolescence, our our moral compass really kicks in. We want justice, and we want things to be fair and clean, and we want the bad guys punished, and we want the good guys rewarded. And it's important, moms and dads, as our kids, um, they, they get their view of the Heavenly Father by often watching their earthly father and mother um, but the, I really think that through the adolescent years, the question about God becomes, can I trust God? Is, is, is God a good God? And so those are some of the things that are the, the soundtrack playing in the back of a young person's mind as they grow up. Well, sociologists have come up with this phrase, adult adolescence. Um, and it's adolescence that is prolonged up into the uh, adult years. You know, 18 going on 30. This is an article I wrote for Focus on the Family magazine. And by the way, do you know that the teenage years are really really a relatively recent phenomenon? Did you guys know that? Um, there was, really, prior to World War II, I'm going to give you a history quiz here in a moment. Um, For really 6,000 years of human history, and even in America up until the 1950s, you were a boy, and you became a man. You were a girl, and you became a woman, and you became a grown-up. Now, after World War II ended, and uh, there was um, uh, Admiral Hirohito signed the Articles of Surrender, and World War II was over. And all the GIs came home and began to have babies and families and subdivisions were developed and cars were plentiful and the economy was good and by about 1955 there were the largest group of teenagers up until that point ever and suddenly it was peace and it was prosperity and there was a lot of leisure. And for the first time ever, normal more, more kids had the ability to go to college and get an education. And you didn't have to go from the backyard playground straight to the mills to go to work. In the 50s, you had the leisure to think about, well, goodness, what might I want to do with my life? But what else was the other thing a cultural juggernaut that hit America, that changed the 50s, and that change exists to this day. Whatever came about circa 1955, 56, that blew things wide open. Do you guys know? What's that? Uh, Well, mom's going to work was a part of it. That was more so in the 60s, but a big cultural phenomenon and I can, I can summarize it in one word, Elvis, rock and roll. Now, do you guys know much about the birth of rock and roll? And it's not a bad thing, I, I mean, I've been a guitar player since I was seven, I've been in bands, Chuck Berry, Elvis, Buddy Holly, the Everly Brothers, um, suddenly you've got prosperity, you've got suburbia, you've got cars drive-in restaurants, Sonic Burger, drive-in movies. And for the first time in world history, this is really huge, um, youth even had their own music. And we all grew up on it. Um, Your grandparents might have grown up on Elvis or, or... the Beatles and Herman's Hermits, your parents might have grown up in the 70s on, you know, the Bee Gees and ACDC and all that, and and one day, what you think is hip in cool music now, someday your kids are going to look back and say, oh my gosh, you were listening to Megan Taylor in 2014 and All About That Bass, oh, that is so ancient history. I mean, seriously, your kids are going to look back at what you listen to. But the, the, there was this thing in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the emergence of youth culture that was, for the first time in history, I mean, that was a big, big deal. Not, not necessarily a bad thing, but here's what happened. Now, now you've got to follow what happened. Rather than going, okay, 13, 14, 15, um, by 16, 17, I'm an adult. I mean, you look at yearbooks. Look at high school yearbooks from the 50s and 60s. And the, the seniors, man, they look like adults. I, I look at the, the high school seniors in, in, like, the yearbooks, my mom and dad's yearbook. I'm like, what are you guys, 50? I mean, they, they look like old people. And you look at, you know, and I know I'm older than all you guys, but like my yearbook uh, in 1982, I mean, we look like teenagers, you know? Now, here we are in 2014, seriously, teenagehood, adolescence, begins about 9 years old and goes to about 30. And it's been stretching. It began in fact, now they're talking about early onset Puberty. I mean and and that's another subject for not here but nowadays uh adolescence begins earlier and stretches longer now that that is not necessarily a bad thing i mean look no, you can be 30 and still like the music of your youth as long as it's not you know ungodly if it's you know, blasphemous to God and telling you to do things that are sinful, you might want to question that. But what what's bad is that now seventeen eighteen, the the milestone where young men begin to act like men and young ladies begin to act like women. Nowadays we got people that are twenties, thirties just living like they're fourteen years old. And that's that's not endearing and it's not even um, unique, it's pathetic. I, I don't know if you saw in the news, this was I think in Raleigh last week. There was a woman at a club and she left her baby in the car, it's like 2 a.m. She's in there, passed out drunk, and the cops arrested her because she's drunk. Her baby has been in the car for hours while she's been in the club drinking, partying. And it turns out this woman is like 40. That is just sad. Now, I don't mean to just be so doom and gloom, but part of what it means to be a, a, a person who follows God is to understand that there are milestones and seasons in life. You remember Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a time, to everything there is a season. Uh, Paul wrote, uh, when I was a child, I felt like a child. When I became a a man, I put away childish things. Now, mom and dad, um, God gives parents this wonderful calling to impart Christianity to their kids. Look at Solomon. Solomon. Um, Wisest guy who ever lived, King Solomon, he could have had anything. God said, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Solomon said, okay, give me wisdom. And by the way, let me give you a really great verse. You ought to know this verse. James 1 verse 5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives abundantly and does not withhold. Isn't that cool? If you ask God to make you wise, he says he'll do it. I don't know about you, I need wisdom. Uh, I pray for God to make me wise. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender, and an only child of my mother, he taught me and said, "Lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve for them. The words are, it's talking about scripture here, the word of God. Hang on to these. Do not forsake wisdom. She will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Love wisdom. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Esteem her, that is wisdom, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, she will honor you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of of splendor. In other words, if you pursue wisdom and live wisely, uh, it will lift you up, says Solomon. Now, what is the path to wisdom? Um, You might think, well, go to the library and read a whole bunch of books. Um, you might get some wisdom that way. Um, does anybody know, without looking or without Googling it, what does the Bible say is the first step on the road to wisdom? Well, yep, do you know what verse that is? Fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it doesn't mean that like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid of God. But it's like reverence. And worship God. I get it. You 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 made me. You're the Lord of my life. There's a verse, and and the the whole seminar could be summarized in this. This is my life motto. If if I had anything to put on my tombstone, it would be this. Proverbs three verses five and six. Does anybody know that from memory? You know it from memory. We come here and say it. What's your name? Beverly? Everybody give Beverly a hand. Now, check this out. I I perceive you are a wise woman. So lay it on us. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. And I only know it because it's my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not into thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy path. Wow. And that's your favorite verse. Well, you are wise. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Amen, amen. He's like, eh. Yeah, I know you've heard this. Mark Twain, Mark Twain, very famous writer. You ought to read Mark Twain. He said, "Uh, when I was 15 years old, I thought my dad was the dumbest man in the world. I'm 21 now, and I realize how smart and wise my dad is. It's amazing how much he's learned in only six years. But who was it that really grew and learned? It was Mark Twain. Um, no, he'll, probably, he'll, he'll rise up one day and say mom is cool but trust in the Lord with all your heart do not lean on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path that's the step to avoiding adult adolescence um, kids let me tell you go into college earning a degree dis- disciplining yourself Um, It's going to take the help of the Lord, but it's going to take character. And let me challenge you, character is not built in a pain-free environment. Just like this, I mean, let's say you're broke and you want to, you know, earn enough money to buy a car. And, you know, let's say you're going to try to save up $3,000 and buy a car, your first car. And you're like, wow, um, I don't have any money. I'm going to have to work, and the lady next door is offering to let me mow her yard, and that's really dirty, and I get sweaty in the hot sun, and I get so tired that my body hurts. Um, And what little money I had, I was going to do some downloads from iTunes. But you know what? If I spend $12 a month on iTunes, and I uh, don't do that, in 12 months, I'll have $144. Well, that will go a little ways to my 3000 bucks. Let me tell you this. Saving money is painful. Just like creating me. Try to use your imagination here for a second. God created this big universe out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. You and I can't do that. I, I can't just say, let there be a Lexus. I mean, I could do it. But what's there is not a Lexus, just my hot air, you know? God told Adam and Eve, by the sweat of your brow, you will till the ground, and it will bring forth food, but it will also bring forth thorns and thistles. We're in a fallen world. So here's what I'm trying to tell you is, to, to grow is going to be painful. Athletes will tell you if you want a, a, a well toned body, you got to hit the gym. No pain, no gain. And our character's the same way. And if I don't give you anything else in this hour together, I'm going to give you Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord. But let me say this I have learned that earning a degree, getting a job, writing a book, um, Getting a girl to marry me, staying married, building a house, doing all those things that I dreamed of doing as a boy. Jesus did it, not me. I mean, I prayed and God helped me. But here's the thing, Um, becoming all that God made you to be is going to be a process that will be at times very painful. You've got to build character, follow through, a, be a person that doesn't quit. And look, we spend all this time, if we want to excel in school and get a national honor society, we've got to study and work hard, if we want to be a good athlete, we've got to work out and go to practice, Our, one of the most important things about you, your character. You're, um, and I'm telling you, your, your virtue, your attributes, you tell the truth, you're a person of your word, you're a person who can do the right thing even if it costs you. Character doesn't happen automatically. Your, your muscles don't develop unless you work them out. Um, intellectually, um, you don't really have friends unless you grow the friendship. And why should we think that our character would grow without some investment from us? God, I want to tell you by personal experience and by the word of God, the Lord wants to bless you. The Lord wants to take you places you can't even dream of. But you've got to put some skin in the game. God is not just going to passively dump wealth and success and achievement and even happiness into your lap. You want to be happy? You want to be successful? You want to look back when you're 50 and go, wow. Thank you, Jesus. What a journey. Jesus says, I'll take you on that journey. I'll, I'll let you have all your dreams. But you got to invest. You've got to put some skin in the game. You've got to talk to me, and that's called prayer. you got to read my word, and that's that's God talking to you. you got to do the right thing even if it hurts. And just like creation itself had to come from some power source, It was God, let me tell you, a successful life, a life that counts, a life that is not a pathetic waste, in a basement playing Xbox is a waste, but a life that will bless you and honor God and touch others, it's got to involve some cost. And that cost, that, that reservoir of wealth that you draw from has got to be good character. And God will give you good character. But you've got to work at it. And, and the time to start is now. And I know <clears throat> what I'm telling you, it might sound a little bit like, what in the world is he talking about? Let's go forward a little bit uh, because I would submit to you part of our nation's struggle is we've lost character. And look at this. Um, my mother was a teacher. She first she went to Meredith College, then at Raleigh. She was a teacher beginning in the fifties. Let me read this. Um, Because, Because as a public school teacher, this was how they chose books in the 50s. In choosing books for children, these rules recently laid down by an author of Good Books for Children, uh, Bullets, are worth consideration. Read your children's books, or better still, get your boy or girl to read them for you. Now listen to this. Does this book lay stress on villainy, deception, or treachery? Are all of the incidents in the book wholesome or true to life, does the book show young people having contemptuous behavior toward their elders and successfully opposing them? In other words, is it about rebellion? Um, Do the young characters in the book show respect for teachers and others in authority? Are these characters the kind of young people you wish your children to associate with? Does the book speak and describe of pranks, practical jokes, and pieces of thoughtless and cruel mischief, as though they were funny and worthy of imitation? Is the English good, and is the story written in good style?" Now that probably sounds like some Victorian lofty um, set of parameters by which to evaluate a book. But you've got to understand, there was a time when character and respect and honesty And uh, that which is upright and wholesome was really affirmed because those that were teachers, those that were in positions of leadership, felt like part of you becoming a successful adult that launches is due to good character. And since what you read kind of shapes how you think, we want to choose books that are thumbs up on the character. Now, my goodness, so many books nowadays are about rebellion, are about sexuality outside of marriage, are about curse words and things that really will swell your mind and and darken your heart. The only reason I'm showing that is to show you how far we've fallen. No doubt, most public school teachers would laugh at this today. Um, because you know, to, to th- I'm going to say that again. Oh well. Wow. Pa, thanks, guys. Our sound system is wonderful. Average young couple getting married between ages 24 to 29. Most young couples, when they get married, will start their marriage with five to thirteen thousand dollars worth of credit card debt. That's not a good thing. If you do not get a brand new 48-inch plasma screen finance at Best Buy, you won't die. In fact, that's an educational opportunity. Without that big screen TV, seeing if you get the big plasma screen TV, then you've got to get Dish or DirecTV or Comcast or Time Warner, and they're going to go up, and that's going to be 49.95 a month plus fees. Um and ATT Uverse and you're just gonna be spending money to become a mind numb zombie and look, can you we we think sports and we think television is so much and we gotta watch, you know, all these shows and everything. Can you tell me what sporting event you were so wrapped up in three years ago today and who it was playing and what the final score was? You can't. We've got to get back to a culture that, that thinks more about things that are eternal than temporal. Look at this. Here's the disturbing and incontrovertible truth. Cyber culture is turning us into a nation of know-nothings. By the way, and I know, believe me, I am keenly, vividly, graphically aware that I'm sounding like some old grandfather just, uh, just you know, ripping on stuff. By the way, when you handle a book, there's just something organic about touching the pages. And now, psychologists have a have a word. Uh, there's there's online or screen reading versus what they call deep reading. Deep reading, when you hold a book, whether it's the Bible, I happen to have a Bible handy, as you touch the pages, your senses are more engaged. They've done study after study, more synapses are firing. When you read a book book, you're not able to click on a different window. Uh, We're to the point now, we've been really in the digital age now for 29 years. Next year is really the 30th anniversary of the Internet proper. See, your mind, as you're reading on a screen, your brain, like Pavlov's uh, dogs, or kind of conditioned, you know you're about to click on some other window. Because you're only on a screen like 90 to 120 seconds. So your brain just doesn't really commit because it knows you're about to click on a different window. And study after study shows we retain and we remember so much more of what we read out of a book book than on screens. That's why sociologists are saying um, the internet is turning us into a nation of no nothings Now, um, I'm going to go forward just a little bit um, and talk about biblical worldview. Now, in my final session I'm really going to unpack worldview. Do you know what I mean when I talk about worldview? Who's got a definition? Some of you, you teenagers. What, what do you think of when you hear the phrase worldview? Do you know what that means? Do you hear that at school? Any? Well, if you go to a Christian school you probably do. Who knows what worldview is? What does it sound like? What does worldview sound like? Can you give me something? Thanks. Like what the world views on everything? What the world views on everything? That's that's very very true. Good. One. Yay. What's your name? Jenna. What do you think of worldview? When you hear the phrase worldview, can you give me a definition of worldview? Uh, history. I don't know. I ain't never studied it. History, history is part of it. Anybody got a thing they want to add to this definition? What is view, V-I-E-W, perspective, how you see things, about the world? Now look, everybody has a worldview. And a worldview says what's important, what is worth paying attention to, uh, what is life about. Really, three big questions. Origin, purpose, destiny. Origin, where did I come from? Purpose, why am I here? Destiny, where am I headed? Worldview speaks to all of those things. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Christian worldview. What what are some of the things of a Christian worldview? Some of the components, some of the nuts and bolts. Anybody want to tell me? I just landed from Mars. I don't know anything about anything. What is a Christian worldview? What's that? Where are we going? And where are we going? Ultimately, where are we going? Heaven? If we know Jesus... Alright, all right. so, so, so a, a, the Christian worldview has something to say about the afterlife, okay? What else is part of a Christian worldview? Creation, very good. What's your name, bro? Seth, so, yeah. good answer, creation. So there was somebody who made all this, we didn't just evolve, right? Alright, so there's Christianity has something to say about our past. Christianity has something to say about our future. What else can a Christian worldview tell me? What path we go on? Yeah? Should I work for money or should I just steal yours? What, what would Christianity say? I should work. I shouldn't steal your money. I should go out and earn some of my own, right? But why? Why should I not? This guy looks like he's got money. Um, Um, While he's in here talking to you, I'll go and break in his car and try to find his wallet. Why should I not do that? I need $2,000 to buy a car, remember? Um, Well, let's assume that you've got a stash out in your Lexus. All right, so I could get a job and earn money and say no to my desires and save up money and experience character, or I could steal his. What's your name? Randall. Now, let's say all of you guys have a Christian worldview. Thumbs up or thumbs down. Do I steal Randall's money or do I go earn my own? Okay, So some of you don't look as if you're sure. Okay. Okay. Really, 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 you be happy. You I want to tell you, brother, they got you back. They don't want me to rob you. All right. And, and that's fine. But let me why? Why, from a Christian perspective, why should I not rob Randall? Because there's consequences? Okay. Okay. This is really good. Okay. If I robbed him, there's consequences. Very true. Uh, that would involve cells and bars and I don't want this consequence. But what else you, you were saying? That's true. It is our beliefs. But 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 what about the terrorists that would say, Well our beliefs are to kill you and take your stuff. So um, I understand it is our belief that Stephen is wrong, but why do we believe that? What were you gonna say? Ephesians four, the, 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 and this is a good answer. Now look, it's fine that we have beliefs, but, but you're right. We've got the Word of God, and and what what is the Word of God? Truth is divine revelation. Now. I beg of you to get this. What's really cool is, if we can point to the Word of God and some other stuff, this elevates the discussion beyond the realm of mere opinion. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, and I'm not trying to pick on you, but if you said, don't sell Randall stuff because that's our belief, atheists would say, well, my belief is this. Muslims can say, my belief is this. Now, it's fine, because our beliefs are part of who we are, but in, let me say this. In addition to our strongly held beliefs, we have an objective source, the Bible. We have a, and the, the moral law written on everybody's heart. So back to a Christian worldview. Christian worldview says I shouldn't steal Randall's stuff. Because there's consequences. Because our strongly held convictions say stealing is wrong. The Word of God says stealing is wrong. What else would a Christian worldview say about living honestly and working hard rather than living dishonestly and robbing people? Let me just, in the interest of time, cut to the chase, Young people, maybe you know this already. Grownups know what I'm saying here. I promise you. I promise, promise, promise. Please trust me. Doing right is its own reward very often. Um, there's a philosophy called pragmatism. P-O-A-G-M-A-T-I-S-M. Pragmatism. Now pragmatism says... Something is valuable if I see some benefit. Um, I'm not going to rob you because otherwise there would be consequences. Now, I understand. Consequences are real. But we need even more than just consequences to motivate us. Oh, I better mow the yard because if I don't, mom is going to fuss at me. No, mow the yard because you're you're blessed to have a roof over your head. And mom and dad provided food on the table. And mowing the grass is one little way that I can contribute. And I can feel a little bit of ownership in this family. I want to tell you something. Don't do right merely because it's pragmatic. There was a great Christian leader named C.S. Lewis. Uh, And and he was influenced by another great Christian leader named G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton said, man's most pragmatic need is to be something more than a pragmatist. See, evolutionists will say, watch this, evolutionists will say, don't steal from the villagers because that would be negative. Um, It's in the best interest of everybody if we live honestly. But we need more than that. No, we live honestly and morally because God made us, God gave us the Ten Commandments, and we're going to answer to God one day. You need to live right because it it is right. And I want to tell you, friends, um, doing right is its own reward, really. Mow the grass because it's right to honor your mother who asked you to do it. And God will grow you and shape your heart. And, and I want to tell you in this session that there's one side of Christianity that is, yes, my home in heaven. Jesus, come into my life, wash my sins away, save me. Christianity is about you not going to hell. But it's very much also about how you live right down here today. Could you be 30, living in your parents' basement, just surfing the net, looking at porn all day? You could do that, but it would destroy your soul, kill all human relationships, and prevent you from experiencing what God put you here to do. Could you go up, be a Christian, uh, and you could have enough of Jesus to keep you out of hell, but not so much that it messes up your life, and you could just live paycheck to paycheck so you can go to the mall and buy stuff. You could do that, but you're not going to be a very happy person. I want to tell you, friend, um, adulthood, as far as Christian maturity for a woman and a man that will touch heaven, impact lives, and put within you joy, comes when you kneel and you say, Jesus, I let go. Lord, you're my Savior. I'm your follower. Here's my life, Lord. It's a blank sheet of paper. Lord, I want you to fill in all the details. I promise, promise, promise. The happiest you'll ever be. The most fulfilled. You will sleep at night with peace and and just joy like a a, a flood um, is when you really let Jesus be the Lord of your life. Now, sometimes... Knowing a biblical worldview and living a biblical worldview will cause people around you to not always understand. I remember I was 21. I was going to UNC Greensboro. I was playing in a couple of bands, and I, you know, I was going to all the thought parties, playing in the bands, and all that. And, um, you know, I became a Christian, and I stopped drinking. And a lot of my friends at college kind of ripped on me for that, but you know, I was still. You know, Alex, and I was their friend, and I'm their friend. And a lot of my my college buddies got saved one by one. But then the bombshell came, and I said I was going to leave UNCG and go to Liberty University in Virginia, a Christian college. Oh man, they made fun of me. And one of my friends, his name was Ted, he said, "You're just going up there because your parents are making you go. your parents are trying to straighten you out." I cannot believe. You're going to let your mom and dad force you to go to Liberty, a Christian school. I was like, my mom and dad didn't ask me to go to Liberty. I want to go to Liberty because I want to uh, study apologetics and God's calling me to the ministry. Um, I don't know if you've ever been made fun of for living for the Lord, but hey, that's just an occupational hazard. Don't let that worry you. If you're, if you're a Christian, part of the challenge is to follow Christ even at the risk of being misunderstood. Let's talk about one other thing um, and I'll explain this slide in just a moment. Um, God made you uh, a male, a female. Uh, God gave the human race this wonderful gift called sexuality and you may have noticed that our culture really doesn't view human sexuality in biblical terms anymore. The Bible says, husbands love your wives, wives love your husbands. But the Bible, it's amazing. Now, we're grown ups, so a little bit of Greek. The Bible says, marriage is honorable in all things, and the bed undefiled. And the word for, it's translated in English, the bed, is the word for sexual intercourse. Marriage is honorable in all things. And intimacy between a husband and wife, God says, yay, blessings to you. But look, this is an old analogy, but it's a good one. Hey, you keep fire in a fireplace, it'll warm the house and get you through the cold winter. You take the log out of the fireplace, uh, it'll burn the house down. We live in a culture where much of the messaging that is given to you is that sex is your uh, resource to use any way, any, any time, any context of your choosing. God says, look, I love you so much, I've told you the boundaries and the parameters where sex can have its fullest expression, its greatest satisfaction, and that just so happens to be within the context of marriage. Of of marriage, study after study shows the people that have the greatest satisfaction, the most sex, the greatest satisfaction is within a heterosexual, committed, long-term, one man, one woman, one lifetime relationship. And and let me just encourage you: if you've if you've blown it sexually, God loves you; He will forgive you; God will restore your heart. But if you have uh, stayed pure as I hope you have, then remain pure. Do that thing that that is so rare but so wonderful, and that's to live out your life, including your sexuality, in God's terms. That's part of a biblical worldview, is to let God, not culture, Inform what you believe about sexuality. Now, look at this. Without a biblical worldview, George Barna, I don't know if you've ever heard of George Barna, but he's a researcher that's very respected. Praise God, I have six minutes. Don't leave me. Listen. Barna says that we need to teach a biblical worldview because without this, all the great teaching goes in one ear and out the other. See, I'm saying do the right, avoid the wrong. And you might be thinking, why? Because God is real. Because God has created you. Because God knows you. And while God loves you and God will bless you, God will also cause you at the end of your life to give an account. And you'll answer to the Lord for what you did with what you had. How you lived in light of what you knew. And, too bad, you know a lot. There's a lot of God's revelation that you've been exposed to. So let me tell you what you'll not be able to do. You'll not be able to say, God, I didn't know. God, don't judge me. I didn't know. No, you knew. You knew. Because there's your conscience, your heart, there's scripture. You say, yeah, but God, I I knew, but I just didn't have time to read that book. God says, too bad. It was there. You should have read it. If you didn't read my word and you didn't know my law, that's... Not my problem because I told you. Plus you had Sunday school teachers and ministers and parents that loved you and they told you the truth. A biblical worldview. Live right. Do right. Obey the Lord who loves you. God hasn't laid down the boundaries because he wants to squelch your fun. God has shown you reality because he doesn't want you to play in the street and get run over by a car. The parent who says stay in the yard, if you go out in that road I'm going to whip you. The parent's not being a bad guy, the parent loves the child. Don't play with the stove or I'll swat you on a hand. Mom and Dad aren't being bad, they're trying to prevent you from a third degree burn. Alright, there are no intellectual pegs in the mind to hang these trees on. They don't stick, they don't make a difference. Um, Apologetics and Biblical worldview are really important in this day and age. Apologetics is why we believe what we believe is God real? Is the Bible true? Was Jesus authentic? Yes. We can demonstrate why it's rational to believe in God. How we know the Bible is authentic. How we know Jesus really lived and died and rose again. That's why we believe. Now what we believe? God is real. God loves you. Uh, Christ can be known, He's got a wonderful plan for everybody's life, and I don't just chill and kick back and party. Uh, I, I earn enough money to get my next bag of weed. Look, that's not what God put you here to do. God put you here to shine and to make a mark for the gospel. And it might be building a godly home, it might be becoming a senator or president. Christian worldview if that becomes your north star and drives you, you will live a life of purpose. See, every one of you is following a world view. I pray your world view is summed up in Jesus. If, if your north star, if, if your guiding point on the compass is, you know, tailgating at a football game or Being a a player, and you're going to see how many sexual rendezvous you can accumulate to yourself. Well, you're going to wind up broken, if not broke, empty, and wondering what happened and where did the years go. I want to challenge you to make Jesus your guiding destination point. And a biblical worldview. Part of it is reading. Remember, deep reading. Part of it is learning. Now, I want to open up the times for questions here in just a moment. Uh, I'll comment on that Newsweek magazine quote. Um, before we wrap, because time fleets away, I remember our Kodak moments were view all of life in terms of stewardship. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a good motto, trust in the Lord with all your heart. A biblical worldview should inform your perspective, and don't just be pragmatic, do right because it is right, not because there might be some benefit, although there is. Before I tie a little bow on this, do we have a question or comment or anything? Let me say this. Failure is not final. There will be times along the journey with Jesus that you'll blow it. There'll be times that you know the right and do the wrong. There'll be times that you look and you want to beat yourself up. What in the world was I thinking? What was I doing? Uh, Aren't you glad that we serve the God of the second, third, and hundredth chance? First yeah, John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know, we use that verse in evangelism, but it was really written to Christians. If you blow it. Or maybe you wake up one day and you're like, You know, God seems far away. Man, I was so close to God and now He seems so distant. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just and will forgive your sins. John 6.37, Jesus said, The one who comes to me I will not reject. Isn't that cool? So come to him. Look at Newsweek Magazine. this sort of, Christianity is panned, thumbs down, by 16 to 29. I hope not. Majority says it's anti-gay, judgmental, and hypocritical. Well, Sometimes truth seems to be anti-this or that. Look, Newsweek magazine really nails us. It says, today's new Christians tend to take from the Bible whatever fits their needs and ignore whatever fails to resonate with their own traditions. Yikes! Jesus, forgive me, take me to heaven one day, yay! Take up my cross daily? Deny myself? maybe change my friends and stop going to those places where I used to fall into patterns of sin. Who's Jesus to tell me what to Oh, that's right. He is the Lord of my life. He's the Lord of the universe. Look, Christianity is not a cafeteria. I'll have a serving of meatloaf, Brussels sprouts, pass. Oh, cheesecake, dessert. Give me a slice. But spinach, vitamins, ne- look, look, This is not a cafeteria line where you can pick and choose. I mean, really. If He's Lord of all, He's Lord of all. And that will help you launch. Now, I've got to quit. But I want to pray. And then we're going to go, I think, to the other building. Let me challenge you. You're going to face Jesus one day. So live a life that will enable you to stand before your Savior unashamed. Unashamed. Let's pray, shall we? Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you so much that you gave us your word. And you said in Psalm 119, how can a young person keep their way straight and clear and pure? By taking heed to your word. So Lord, I pray for myself that I would take heed to your word, that all the moms and dads here would recommit themselves to building a Christian home, and Lord, especially for these teenagers, Father, thank you so much for a generation of young people that are so bright and so uh, just full of, of energy and smiles, Lord, it's exciting to see, and I pray the Spirit of God will rest on their lives. Lord, that you will help them to walk with you, to avoid sin, to cleave to the Savior. Lord, in this nation that is so desperately in need of change, Lord, would you raise up young people that understand a biblical worldview and are committed to live it, and that they launch, not only for this life, but ready for eternity. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. God bless you in Jesus sir you've got a